It's Monday, September the 12th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. While I lay claim to that rather wordy job title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who's doing podcasts these days. Go to the Hoover website, hoover.org, and check it out for yourself. Click on the top of the page where it says commentary. Go to multimedia, and up will come the podcast. And one of our guests today, by the way, is a podcaster in his own right, and I'll explain that in a minute. Our guest today is Andrew Roberts. Andrew Roberts is the Roger and Martha Mertz Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, a renowned historian whose most recent book, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III. And as I mentioned, he's a podcaster in another right. He does a podcast for Hoover called Secrets of Statecraft, which you can find on the Hoover website. His most recent guest is Condoleezza Rice. I'd also refer you to a podcast he did earlier this summer with Robert Hardman, who's a British journalist, correspondent, and biographer of Queen Elizabeth II, which uh, who is going to be the subject of today's podcast. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on the show. You are kind, Bill. I much appreciate being invited. A quick question, sir. The Queen's funeral is uh, September the 19th, a week from today. Do you plan to get any sleep between now and then? <laughs> I started today at four o'clock in the morning. I'll be carrying on until nine tonight, uh, doing nothing but royal funeral related uh, articles and uh, and NBC broadcasts. So actually, the answer to that genuinely is no. <laughs> Yes. Andrew, you wrote a rather elegant column in Saturday's Wall Street Journal on the passing of the Queen, the headline, uh, She Was the Best of Us. I'd like to read back this passage uh, from what you wrote and uh, have you explain this a little bit for us. Uh, this is what you said with regard to those people who'll be lining up to uh, to view her when she lies in state. I believe there's four days of her lying in state. And then the funeral on the 19th, uh, news reports today claim as many as a million people may show up for this. Uh, I believe 300,000 turned out for her father's funeral in 1952, 200,000 for the Queen Mother's funeral. Uh, so this is going to be extraordinary viewing. But here's what you wrote, quote, I strongly suspect that it will go down. We said this of the line of mourners, quote, I strongly suspect that it will go down the Thames all the way to the city of London financial district in the east of the capital as they pay their respects at her lying at state. You continued. They will come from across the four kingdoms and from around the world. They will wait patiently in line for many hours on end. They will doggedly put up with the rain and cold winds all night. They will josh with the coppers and stay cheerful. They will bring their children and grandchildren who will one day be able to tell their own children and grandchildren that they paid their last respects to Queen Elizabeth II, Elizabeth the Good. Andrew Roberts, to whom or to what are these mourners saying goodbye? Are they saying goodbye to a woman, a monarch, a national institution, or in a larger extent, Andrew, are they saying goodbye to an aspect of British honor and tradition? I think all four of those things, uh, Bill, they are saying goodbye to somebody who they love and admire and respect. And also they're saying thank you uh, to somebody for seven decades of uh, service to them. So I think you're quite right. There is a, a melange of different uh, impetus for this. And um, you'll, you'll find people will do, be doing it for different reasons. I think quite a lot of people will be doing it. Uh, of course, hardly any of these people actually ever met the Queen. They'll be doing it because they know it's a moment of history and that they're going to be able to uh, to talk about it. And uh, they, some people are going to do it, I think, to uh, meet other people. It's amazing how many people make friends in that uh, line that they then keep for years. It's a it's a sort of massively social thing. It's a part of the of the sort of warp and woof of the fabric of English life to uh, to do this. And uh, the idea of them being a force to line, to queue, as we call it, uh, for many hours on end, actually just makes them happier rather than irritated. 
Andrew, I would uh, refer you to that great British philosopher, Elizabeth Hurley, who said of the Queen's passing, quote, cut from a cloth that has long been discontinued. That's a very poetic line from a, from one of the great sort of society beauties of the uh, of the age. So uh, well done. Well done, Liz Hurley. What is she saying, though? Discontinued. Well, she's saying that um, it's the last generation uh, that remembers the war. The uh, Queen went up on the balcony with Winston Churchill and uh, her parents to greet the crowds. And uh, she's the last uh, head of state to have served in the war. She was a member of the ATS during the Second World War. Um, and so it's a it's a the greatest generation. I think you call them here in the United States, don't you? Uh, that's obviously doesn't have that much longer uh, just in terms of uh, of longevity and so that cloth has, is coming to an end Andrew, I'd like to uh, point out two dates in British history and get your thoughts on these the first is January the 30th 1965 and that's Winston Churchill's funeral uh, in which the British people turned out to say goodbye to both a man and an era uh, do you think the Queen's funeral is going to have the same look and feel as that it will, yes, absolutely. It's going to be bigger apart from anything else. We're going to have, uh, I think, the estimates, the police estimates of 700,000 people attending are all wrong. I think we're going to get to a million people. I think we're going to have hundreds of thousands go past, file past the catafalque in Westminster Hall. They're going to have to go three abreast and they're not going to be able to stop. It strikes me if we're going to get through everybody. There are people flooding into London. The Metropolitan Police have also worried, uh, worried that, as they put it today, London is is full. There is literally no more space on on anybody's uh, you know bedrooms or sofas because people have been flooding in to uh, start this process on Wednesday. So uh, so yes, I think it's going to be a bigger thing uh, physically, just in terms of numbers of people, than even Sir Winston Churchill's funeral. The second date, Andrew, would be January twenty second, nineteen oh one, with which would be the passing of Queen Victoria. Uh, she is succeeded by Edward the seventh, her eldest son and second child. He is fifty nine, Andrew, at the time that he ascends to the throne. Victoria, having ruled for nearly sixty four years, uh, Edward the seventh, Andrew, rules for only nine plus years. He is then succeeded by George the fifth, who is Queen Elizabeth the second's grandfather, who then rules for a quarter of a century. In other words, he is something of a transitional monarch. Do you think Charles the uh, third fits the same pattern as Edward the? I don't think so. Oh, by the way, uh, I think Edward VII, yes, he's transitional in terms of how long he was on the throne, but he was absolutely essential for uh, promoting the Anglo-French Entente, which of course yes. was in itself essential for our um, uh, our geopolitics before the First World War. So I think uh, I think you know one can easily sort of write him off, but he was an important king in his, in his own right. Um, of course, with just the sheer number of years on the throne. Um, King Charles III is probably going to um going to actuarially as it is as it were going to beat Edward VII by some time because uh if King Charles has the same longevity as his parents his mother died at 96 his father at 99 he could be on the throne for a quarter of a century from now he's 70 he's 74 years old i believe 73 and so you're going to make him uh, that makes him mid 90s in in 25 years time so there's nothing to suggest actuarially at least that this isn't going to be quite a long reign 
Mm-hmm. Let's discuss now how he handles the monarchy, if you will. On the same day that Queen Elizabeth passes, Andrew, Hillary Clinton appears on Bravo television. And I hope for God's sake that you do not know what Bravo television is because it's an American invention. It's an American cable network, Andrew, that shows a lot of salacious television, real housewives and so forth. And she and her daughter, Chelsea, were on Bravo to promote a show that they were that they're doing on Apple TV. Uh, in short, Hillary Clinton, who would consider herself something of American political royalty, is in some respects kind of cheap the brand by going on Bravo. Do, is there any fear that the royal family may start moving down this path in the quest to be more personable, to be more relatable to the, to the British people, that you might see them doing things that Queen Elizabeth would dare never have done? No, I don't think that's uh, going to happen with either uh, King Charles III or his eldest son, the Prince of Wales. Whether mm-hmm. it happens with more um, minor figures of the royal family, I think, uh, I'm afraid to say that I think it's already slightly started to happen with Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, frankly. Yes. Her, her podcast is is going on the way towards this uh, this thing, Bravo, which I do admit I've never watched and never heard of. But uh, you're, you're, And you're not selling it terribly. Terribly well to me, Bill. Either I have to say, but nonetheless, um, I think if if there is anybody in the in the royal family, insofar as as Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, is a soi disant member, obviously of the royal family, uh, having resigned her her royal duties, um, then it would be her. But um, otherwise, what's happening with the royal family and what uh, King Charles wants very much to do is to slim it down and to make it a much smaller, uh, sort of leaner, uh, more efficient, cheaper, as it turns out, organisation that um, that doesn't have uh, lots of uh, frills and, and, and extras that go on Bravo, frankly. Mm-hmm. And what comes to the Commonwealth? Uh, you were just on NBC a short while ago, and after uh, your segment was off, they started going around the globe, and they went to Jamaica, and they went to Australia and New Zealand and started speculating on the future relationships between these countries and Great Britain. Well, there's a huge difference between the Commonwealth, which is 54 countries uh, comprising a third of mankind, as you know, Mm -hmm. and the Crown Commonwealth, which are those 15 realms that have King Charles as their head of state. And frankly, if uh, places like Barbuda and and Jamaica want to um, become republics, uh, then that's absolutely fine. But they will, and nobody minds that, not not even King Charles, when he went to Barbados, which became uh, independent last November, he he turned up to the uh, to the ceremony, and uh, and you know that doesn't terribly much matter. I personally think um, that there is a slightly geopolitical element here, owing to the fact that um, this first of all it happened very undemocratically. There was no referendum, for example. You know, if you're going to make a massive difference, like who your head of state is going to be, it strikes me that uh, that there ought to the people ought to have a a chance to vote, but you just got 29 people voting for it in the Barbadian parliament. But also in a in a world that's increasingly going to be threatened by China, especially in the West Indies, um, I think that it's uh, overall a bad thing that these countries should be cutting their ties to a country which uh, tries to um, stay within the Western ambit, obviously, and also promote democracy and to um, promote the kind of values that, that you and I hold. Now, one thing the Queen's passing seems to have done, Andrew, is it's opened the door for academics to come out of the woodwork and start attacking the legacy in the British Empire. And it strikes me as similar to here in America in the 1619 Project, the idea that America was built on slavery and the British Empire likewise should be should be ashamed of its past. How do you push back against that as a historian? 
Oh, on several fronts. I mean, the first thing, obviously, is the Commonwealth. If uh, these countries were so genuinely so uh, so badly treated by us, uh, why on earth should they continue to be members? Why should they have joined um, the Commonwealth? The second one, obviously, is that Her Majesty the Queen was born in 1926. Uh, to blame her for anything to do with slavery is uh, is completely absurd. Frankly, you know, uh, we abolish slavery in. In 1833, and and the slave trade in 1807, um, the, for for Prince Charles to be blamed for the legacy of slavery is a complete absurdity, in my view, at least. Uh, and thirdly, I think most importantly, really, um, there is this kind of slightly infantilizing element to this um, essentially woke argument that uh, that. The whole of American history and the whole of British history should be seen entirely through this particular prism, um, because what it does is to uh, take away the importance of personal responsibility and uh, and individual effort. It, it it basically says that you're you're marked with Cain at the at birth um, for however many generations, and that uh, therefore that is. Um, uh, nothing that can be, but nothing essentially can be done, and, and that has to be a bad thing for a nation and a society. It strikes me. So, your advice to Charles III on how to navigate this? Um, well, I think make yourself be visible. Um, take your very charming, very uh, good-natured, and and rather splendid wife, uh, the Queen Consort uh, Camilla, and actually meet people. Uh, they they meet hundreds of thousands of people a year, go to the Crown Commonwealth. If places like Jamaica want to go off and uh, um, and be independent, well, that's uh, fine by then. But there are lots of other countries, Australia, of course, being an important one, where we've just heard only a couple of days ago, the Prime Minister saying that a republic referendum was not on his agenda for his first term, uh, and New Zealand and Canada and so on, and um, uh, show the flag. And uh, I think that this um, this assumption that because uh, Britain had an empire and because it uh, also had a slave trade, or at least up until the early nineteenth century, um, they never need to they never seem to mention the fact that we had thousands of royal naval uh, soldiers dying fighting the tra- the slave trade in the early nineteenth century as well. Um, then then that's up to them. Right. Uh, Andrew, um, Andrew, Andrew Sullivan, writing about the Queen's passing, wrote the following, quote, Elizabeth Windsor was tasked as a 20-something with a job that required her to say or do nothing that could be misconstrued, controversial, or even interestingly human, and he added it with emphasis, for the rest of her life. Um, this strikes me, Andrew Roberts, as a treasure trove for historians to explore if she, if she really is not on record as saying much. It's, it's, it's certainly true she's not on, on record as saying much. Um, as in public statements, but she spoke to hundreds of thousands of people. It, it said actually three million people she in some way interacted with. There was one occasion where she, uh, I think it was the British Embassy in Washington, where she shook 5,000 people's hand in one day. Uh, the idea that she has therefore done nothing humanly interesting is complete codswallop. She was a fascinating woman in her own way. She just wasn't going to be giving speeches and writing articles and doing the kind of things that uh, the uh, the commentariat like you and I do. Right. So if I tasked you, if I gave you, pardon the pun, a king's ransom to explore her life, to write a biography of her as you did of George III, how would you explore it? Uh, well, the first thing you do is go to her diaries. Of course, she's a, uh, she, a 
apparently an avid uh, daily diarist. And uh, so you'd have 70 years of daily um, thoughts and insights from her, which would be the uh, key source, it strikes me, to, for, for a book like that. When I uh, wrote my biography of Churchill, uh, it was tremendously helpful for me to have been the first Churchill biographer to have been allowed to uh, work on the King's diaries, on her father's diaries, King George VI diaries, which uh, which had any number of very interesting aspects of, of Churchill that uh, cropped up in those, as you can imagine, especially during the Second World War. And so I think that would be the, the first source. By the way, I'm not, uh, I'm not in any way... Uh, um, saying that I wouldn't take on the job, but uh, there are at least, I think off the top of my head, I'd say six historians much more likely to get the uh, the role of um, the Queen's biographer than me. But if you had a chance to read her uh, diaries, Andrew, and in a sense, get inside her head, what would you like to find out? I'm here in America, of course, we want to go down the tawdry. We want to find out how she felt about her children and her grandchildren and their various failings. But what would you like to know? Would you want the personal, the family relationship, or are there certain policy matters, historical events that you would be intrigued by? Yeah. Um, I'm interested in personality, but not hugely in, uh, as interested in that in the personality of her uh, family as in the personality of what she thought of, say, um, JFK or Ronald Reagan or um, or Nelson Mandela or any of those uh, thousands, literally thousands of people going back to Harry Truman and beyond uh, who she met. I'd love to read, obviously, as a biographer of Churchill, I'd love to read her side of the weekly audiences that they had every Tuesday when he was prime minister from 1952 to 1955. I mean, these would be absolutely fascinating. They're, they're gold dust. But unfortunately, uh, as I say, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm probably about sort of number six or number seven on the list. <laughs> And quickly, mechanically, how would this, would you have to go to the royal family and ask for permission to, to get access? They appoint you. They appoint you. Prince, um, Prince Charles, I'm sure, will have already thought about, uh, about this. And uh, he has several friends who are historians. He's very interested in history. He's, uh, um, you know, he, he uh, is a... Uh, of a historian monkey, I think sometimes you you he was very interested in the teaching of history in school. So he'll have a, a strong sense of who would be the person to do this. And then he would appoint them and they would then get a presumably quite massive advance from a publisher and then they'd get on with it. I mean, some royal biographers have spent a very long time, you know, like 10 years on uh, on biographies. I, I don't think that's a tremendously um, sensible way to go about it. But you would, as well as you know, reading the diaries and the letters, you'd have to immerse yourself in the royal archives for a number of years, just uh, reading her, um, her correspondence. And then you'd have to go and interview everyone who knew her, who's still alive, of whom there would be uh, hundreds, uh, all her private secretaries, all of her um, members of her family, of course, uh, all her Prime Ministers, she had 15 of them, of whom six, seven are still alive. So, gosh, it would be an extraordinary amount of, uh, of work, but enjoyable, I think, for anybody who wanted to do it. And finally, Andrew, um, Monday the 19th, her funeral. I assume you will be busy that day doing commentary. Um, where will you be? And for those of us here in the state who will be tuning in, tell us exactly what we should be looking for. What should we focus on? Oh, golly, I'm afraid I'm focusing on day to day at the moment. I haven't even thought about next Monday. <laughs> um, I haven't been told where I'm going to go. I'm going to be on NBC. I'm one of their royal commentators. Uh, if it's anything like 
the um, previous funerals, Prince Philip's funeral or um, the Queen Mother's funeral, I'll probably be at Windsor. And um, and that's a good place to be. It's a it's a very uh, powerful, you know, emotionally. The idea of uh, being in the place that she loved best. The Scots always love to say that she loved Balmoral more than Windsor, but we're pretty sure it was Windsor. Uh, so I will um, uh, go wherever I'm told, frankly. All right, uh, but Andrew, the the death of a monarch versus the death of an American president. You watch a, an American presidential funeral. Um, the casket is uh, taken along by horses. There's a riderless horse following the casket, flags in front. Um, but it's not as not as showy as a as a monarchy of, of funeral. So I'm just curious, what gestures, what symbols we should be looking for as Americans as we watch this procession? Uh, well, I mean, one of the things is that the um, the gun carriage is going to be pulled along by um by ratings by by soldiers sailors of the royal navy um which is which is quite an extraordinary thing that was what happened with churchill's funeral as well um you'll also have like you do with presidential funerals as well a lot of foreign dignitaries coming over uh, president biden's going to be coming to our one but i think uh Possibly scores of other world leaders are going to uh, to descend on London, um, and you're going to see all of the great pomp and pageantry and circumstance of the British state, right the way up to the point where Garter King of Arms breaks his wand over his knee and puts it into the grave. Uh, you know, there's going to be all sorts of, of, of flummery, uh, but also some very moving moments. I think where you will. Uh, You'll see um, the. Um, I, 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 I personally think I'm the one thing I'm most worried about actually is whether or not I'm going to get emotional on air. It's not a very English thing to do that, but uh, if the thing is just too powerful, I, I uh, rather sort of doubt my upper lip is going to stay as stiff as it needs to. And that's my final question, Andrew, just the emotions that are running through the British people. We have our time, I think, processes in the States because our leaders come and go every four to eight years. Uh, there's really no one figure in America who dominates the landscape the way that Queen Elizabeth II would have in Britain. So how do the British people process? Is it is it grief? Is it sadness? Is it tears? Is it happiness? How how do they say goodbye to her? Well, we've seen all of those in the every single one of those uh, emotions, and we're going to see an awful lot more over the next week as uh, people, as I say, line through the, um, uh, along the Thames and get to the coffin and, uh, and then come out sort of blinking into the, into the, uh, uh, afterwards, uh, we've seen, um, people show tremendous respect. The crowds at the moment, especially in uh, Scotland today, have been, uh, uh, they've, they've applauded the coffin as it passes, but uh, it's yeah. been done in a very, uh, in a very modern way. I, I like the, um, I, I, I used to be annoyed by all this holding up of iPhones and, and so on and trying to record it. But actually, is that so different from what Samuel Pepys did when he recorded the great occasions. He'd go back to Seething Lane, he'd write it in his diary. The modern way of recording these occasions is, is to use your iPhone. So I don't uh, think that I should be quite so snobby as I have been about this. 
And then finally, the future for um, for Great Britain, Andrew. Um, the Queen has passed. You have a new prime minister. It appears to be a difficult winter coming up with energy uh, uncertainty in Europe with the war in Russia, political leadership, new German leader, new uh, French president, and so forth. Um, just give us an idea of where Great Britain stands right now and the transition that's coming in the next few months ahead. Yes, well, you're right, of course. Um, Liz Truss has on her plate a vast number of, uh, of problems. I think that she's uh, done very well so far, actually. I mean, to have the Queen die on your sort of third day in office is is a pretty serious uh, thing to have happen. But equally, um, I think that she's uh, she's grasped the moment very well. She's going to be going with King Charles to the to the capitals of the uh, four parts of the United Kingdom, which is uh, also a very good thing to have done. Um, uh, frankly, you know. <sighs> It's uh, it's it's it is completely up in the air. But so far, over the over the first week or so, uh, the auguries look good, both for Liz Truss and uh, and very much for the king. Mm-hmm. So Britain will maintain a stiff upper lip and carry on. Yes, of course, that's what we do. And also, let's remember, it's a you know we've had a thousand years of monarchy. Um, so uh, so you know it's a it's a book of chapters, and one chapter's closed, a long and distinguished one has closed, another one has opened. But that's uh, the way of history, and that's the way of of life. Andrew, we'll leave it there. I certainly appreciate your time today. Um, good luck uh, holding up over the next week or so, and my condolences to you and your and your fellow countrymen. Well, kind. Thank you very much indeed, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word and get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Andrew Roberts, brave man that he is, is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is, and bear with me, it's a little complicated, at A Roberts underscore Andrew. Let me repeat that, at A Roberts underscore Andrew. You can also go to Amazon and find an entire page devoted to his fine works, his outstanding biographies on George III, Churchill, and Napoleon. I mentioned our website beginning of the podcast, which is uh, hoover.org. You can go there and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Andrew Roberts and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.